Now, the document Chris Ani is speaking about in that clip is uh, the uh, 1969 memorandum, which uh, many people suggest certainly in the ANC triggered uh, the first conference of the ANC outside of South Africa in exile, and that was the uh, conference held in Morogoro in Tanzania. And I'd encourage all of us to go back and read that memorandum. Read that memorandum with, uh, I guess, a context in mind, the contemporary context, the today context in mind. And I can tell you there are so many parallels uh, certainly in uh, those uh, who lead and govern us in this day and age. And, uh, of course, uh, some of the excesses of the leadership that uh, Martin Tembisilahani, Chris Ani, was mentioning there as a young leader uh, all the way out in 1969 before he became uh, the Chris Hani of uh, the legend uh, that uh, many of us, of course, grew up around knowing this uh, Chris Hani person. Uh, not only, I mean, you know, growing up, I never thought Chris Hani actually was a person. You know, I thought it was was a legend. Uh, more than anything else, but uh, would love to hear your perspectives, of course, as we celebrate and reflect on the life of uh, one of the greatest revolutionaries that we've produced in this country. Give us a ring on 089-110-3377, We now shift our attention, uh, certainly, to uh, from one revolutionary to the next, and I must say my next guest, uh, I view him as a revolutionary, and uh, certainly uh, one of... Uh, the scholars, uh, African scholars, not only on the continent, uh, in the diaspora as well, that I hold in very high regard. His name is Professor Mulefike Asante. Uh, he's an internationally renowned scholar from the Department of Africology and uh, African American Studies at the College for Liberal Art in Temple University in Philadelphia. And uh, from uh, Monday this week, uh, right through to the end of this week, is part of uh, the uh, Principal and Vice Chancellor's African Intellectual Project at UNISA. And uh, he'll be engaging the UNISA community on issues of decolonization and the re-Africanization of our education system and, of course, the transformation in institutions of higher learning, certainly topical issues here uh, in the uh, current age here in South Africa. And he now joins me on the line. Professor Mulefi, good evening to you and thank you so much for joining us this evening on Metro FM Talk. I am so delighted to be on the radio with you here in South Africa. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And uh, I maybe want us, want us to start here because, you know, many people ask, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is an African-American scholar with the name Mulefi Asante. And, uh, of course, you weren't born uh, Mulefi Kiti Asante. You were born Arthur L. Smith. What, what prompted that change? Maybe let's start off there. Well, well I, I, let's put it, I was not born Arthur L. Smith. I was given the name Arthur L. Smith Indeed. at birth. <laughs> that, that may be put away, to, uh, but he, he, the name. Uh, it is a fact that. Ah, uh, uh, Professor Asante, I'd like us maybe to pause this slightly while we try and re-establish our connection there, because I'd like for us, as we uh, have this conversation, to have a proper line. So those are the words of the man I'm in conversation with. And if you'd like to weigh in on our conversation, give, a, give me a ring on 089-110-3377. I'm also uh, tracking and following your tweets on at MetroFMSA. You can use the hashtag MetroFMTalk. And uh, Professor Mulefi, I think we have you on a better line. And uh, please yes, continue. Yes, it better now. Can it you hear me? much, much better. Please continue. All right. So I was, I was saying that in terms of my name, so uh, what happened to me was that uh, I don't look like an Englishman, and I shouldn't have an English name. Mm. And I was born an African, and uh, and I was given that name because my father, as he later told me, uh, he did not know any African names. You have to remember that Africans uh, in the Americas 
uh, were enslaved for 246 years. We were separated, disconnected from the African continent. Uh, sometimes there were people who were able to keep traditions and to maintain linkages, uh, but for the most part, uh, 95% of us, whether we were in Brazil or whether we were in the uh, U.S. or Colombia or Venezuela or uh, Panama, uh, wherever we were in Jamaica, uh, we, we lost contact with our African names. So in 1972, uh, I went to Ghana, and I was given this name, uh, Asante, by uh, Opoku Wari II, who was the paramount king of the Asante people. And, uh, and then I chose, out of solidarity with the South African struggle, the Suto name, Molifi. So, um, so that was interesting until I discovered through DNA that my ancestry, actually, on my mother's side, goes back to uh, Sudan, to Nubia, mm. and that on my father's side, it goes to Nigeria, uh, Yoruba. So uh, I was then given a Yoruba name, Adewale, mm. uh, and yet I have other names as well, because I'm also uh, Wanadu in the kingdom of Songhai and Gao in Mali. So I have many names. I, I have, I have my, um, my kingship name from Ghana, uh, Nana Okru Asante Piazza, uh, the Chidamahini of Tafo. Uh, and I have uh, uh, the nicknames that they call me in my family in the U.S. Okay. So I have many names. Okay. Now, now a big chunk of uh, certainly the work that you've undertaken over the decades has been uh, what uh, uh, you refer to as Afrocentricity. And, uh, you know, uh, yes. certainly in, in the work that I've uh, uh, read, uh, what for me really spoke to me at, at uh, you know at first reading was um, this notion of what we as Africans would be and what we would do in the absence yes. of a history of oppression and uh, especially here in South Africa of a history of settler colonialism and of course subsequent apartheid uh, uh, how do we think of ideally what we ought to have been in the absence of that uh, oppressive historical experience well the thing is you raise a very good question because what Afrocentricity allows is that the African person uh, acts out of his or her own agency, that we are not on the periphery of Europe. Uh, we are not uh, junior brothers or junior sisters to Europe. We are ourselves historical figures. And so what, what has happened to us is that over the years, Europe has imposed its ethnocentric views on the rest of the world as if they are normal and as if they are universal and as if they are the only models. And by doing that, it is, a, it is as if Europe is at dinner uh, and eating all the food and, uh, and, and don't want us to have a plate on the table. So uh, Afrocentricity says that all African people uh, are historical beings and therefore act out of our own agency. When mm. we act out of our own agency, we name ourselves, we determine our own destinies, uh, we create, we invent, uh, we, um, we, we, are able, we do things out of that history. So the, uh, and I wanted to say this because I'm here in South Africa and I say it in a lot of places, but in South Africa, one of the people who was very early on in this movement was a South African, 
by the name of Cato. And uh, Cato and I used to eat breakfast every morning and have these discussions uh, for about a year on the question of African uh, people being in the center of history because, after all, uh, Homo sapiens start on the African continent. And the African people were the first people to know how to cross a river. Uh, they were the first people to know what was edible and, and what would kill you if you ate it. Uh, so, so Africa is at the center of all human civilization. And not only at the center of human civilization, but in South Africa, you are at the very dawn of Homo sapiens creating and, and, and building structures because mm-hmm. the oldest structures on the face of the earth that were created by human beings uh, are right here in South Africa. Yeah. Let's talk just briefly here about, I guess, uh, this as a psychological and a political project of Afrocentricity. I mean, m- many of the people listening into this conversation would be familiar with the ideas of uh, 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 Stephen Biko and the Black Consciousness Movement and how they prioritize the uh, psyche of the black person in South Africa as what needed and ought to have been transformed as a first step in uh, the pursuit of liberation. And of course, uh, you know, that chimes in very nicely with some of your own thinking of saying Africans, rather than being subjects uh, for some anthropological inquiry or the colonial gaze, can for themselves be actually, rather than being objects, can actually be subjects. And I want us maybe just on the other side of this brief break to come back to that issue and of course some of the commonalities and um, uh, I guess the intellectual uh, experiences that uh, you would share certainly with uh, the ideas of uh, Stephen Biko. I'm in conversation with Mulefi Keti Asante. Professor, um, just the tail end of the question that I was uh, posing to you, um, you know, any intellectual sort of commonalities that, of course, you would have seen uh, with the ideas of uh, uh, Stephen Biko here in South Africa and the Black Consciousness Movement? Okay. Thank you so much for that question, because one of the great influences on me was Steve Biko. Uh, Biko understood far more uh, than uh, many uh, people who, had, who lived a longer life than he did. Uh, one of the things that I remember, I said this, I think, today uh, in one of my conversations, was that when I read his book, um, you know, I write what I like, it was very powerful for me, because one of the things he said was that uh, th- th- there were terrible things that happened to us through education and religion. And basically what happened to us was that the education that we were given, or the system that we were in, was meant to destroy us psychologically and emotionally and also to oppress us. In fact, to make us uh, slaves uh, to an alien ideology and an alien doctrine of white racial domination and white racial supremacy. So that that so so that was a, a very powerful thing in terms of how it activated the notion of Afrocentricity as an intellectual, political, uh, psychological uh, narrative. Because uh, without uh, understanding what Biko was talking about about black consciousness, we can never do anything and change anything. We can't transform anything. Uh, and operating in a ah, we seem to have lost the professor. Are you still with us, sir? Ah, we seem to have lost the professor. Let's try and reestablish the connection. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. 
Eish, as lines. Yin is a Sashuganis and Mohabul. Yeah, battling with those lines there with uh, uh, Professor Mulefiki Di Asante. But uh, certainly, uh, you would have heard there, of course, in one of the clips that we were playing back, uh, how he stresses and underscores the importance of ideology and ideas. And, uh, uh, of course, it's something that's topical for us here because, uh, as he mentions, you know, uh, in the absence of that ideology, just like, you know, Thomas Sankara used to say, a soldier without ideology is no different to a criminal or a thug. I guess, you know, even uh, with us as Africans, absent of ideology, we shouldn't be surprised then uh, that as South Africans we then try and prey on our Mozambican and Zimbabwean brothers. Uh, because, uh, you know, we, in many ways, we, if you don't have that Afrocentricity, you tend to buy into all of, uh, I guess, the uh, Eurocentric distinctions and, of course, the colonial distinctions that uh, have uh, been used in divide-and-rule kind of tactics uh, to be able to wedge a divide uh, between the African people. And... Uh, and one of the things that certainly for me appeals to uh, uh, to my own uh, consciousness uh, from uh, the work of Mulefikiti Asante is this notion that uh, we really have universalized European philosophy and European thought and made it uh, something of a universal thing, absent of the contribution that African people and people from the third world have made uh, to uh, the history of the world. And we have the professor on the line, Wabuyum Khabulo. Uh, I'm certainly delighted for that. Professor, it seems that yes, uh, the sir. South African telephone lines are uh, uh, probably conspiring against us uh, receiving this uh, important lesson from you. All right. Professor, I want us maybe to come back to, to one of the points that uh, you've been making. Uh, and, uh, you know, in South Africa here, many people often say uh, we shouldn't maybe draw too much from, I guess, the black experience in the United States because numerically we're a majority here. And I often... Uh, push back to that to say we might be a numerical majority, but uh, from an economic and a social cultural perspective, we continue to be a minority coming as we do from the settler colonial history and uh, a history of apartheid. And when you look at, I guess, the role of Afrocentricity in the role of unlearning and undoing all of what colonialism and apartheid have taught us here, certainly as it relates to uh, how we uh, interact with Africans from other places outside of South Africa on the continent and even Africans from the diaspora, uh, uh, what does Afrocentricity hold uh, by way at least of allowing us to resolve some of those contradictions? Thank you very much for that question. And let me just say this, that um, I, I always take the position, the position that uh, Marcus Garvey took when he uh, traveled throughout the um, North American continent and, uh, and South America. And he came back, and he was in his early 20s, and he said, everywhere I go, uh, whether I go to Colombia or Panama, or uh, whether I go to Nicaragua or uh, wherever, the United States, Mexico, wherever I see black people, uh, they are basically uh, dealing with the same problems. And, the, and that, that's the situation whether you have a country that is uh, 80% or 90% uh, black uh, or you have a country that is 20% black. The condition of black people, because of the expression of a uh, hegemonic uh, uh, pan-European academy, is one in which black people have basically been moved off of their own uh, terms, whether those terms are uh, 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 value terms or whether they are psychological terms, whether they're historical terms, whether they're terms of aesthetics like beauty or what is good, uh, whether they're terms that deal with uh, relationships and so forth. So um, I'm a Pan-Africanist. I always tell people, 
I'm an African, but I'm a Pan-Africanist in the sense that everywhere I go in the African world, I see the same things. In other words, uh, I don't see an African university, even though I see uh, Africans in universities and Africans running universities, they are still basically white institutions that are based on the values uh, of white domination. And so uh, what we have to do is to transform those institutions. And we have to transform them, whether they're in Nigeria or Kenya, or whether they're in Ivory Coast, or whether they're in Guinea or Senegal or South Africa, or whether they are one of the 100 black colleges in the United States. Uh, there, there are black colleges in the United States that have been there for 100 years, and yet they are not African institutions mm-hmm. because they basically have carried on what I call the miseducation of the black person. And the miseducation of the black person is to make you believe that you don't have a classical civilization, that you don't have a relationship to a classical past, and, and all, uh, all knowledge in those institutions tend to start with the Greeks. And the Greeks are children to the Africans in terms of uh, longevity, in terms of uh, uh, historical um, uh, achievements. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Nile River runs only in one continent, and that's Africa. And, the, uh, and along the Nile River are half of all the world's great ancient monuments. And the, they're African monuments. They're not Arab monuments. They're not European monuments. The, the, the Africans created uh, the civilization of Egypt and Nubia long before the Arabs came there. The Arabs came from Arabia. And they came into Africa in 639 A.D. That's, that's late. The, civiliz- the, the pyramids were built 2,500 years B.C. The first philosopher in the world is a black man, M. Hotel. The, the, the beginning of writing and the first people who were deified for writing is a black man, Jehudi, and a black woman, Seishat. So this is, but this is our history, and to disconnect us from it Mm. is to create an apartheid educational system, a segregated educational system, a white supremacist educational system, which basically keeps Africans away from connecting with other Africans. So that's why I claim a Pan-African identity. Uh, I claim an identity that says that all African people uh, basically... Uh, must uh, take credit for being the ones who created uh, the largest megalithic uh, structures mm. in the ancient world uh, in, uh, in Pumalanga and, and take credit for creating the longest trench for protection, military protection, uh, the, the Eredo Trench that encircled the Yoruba Kingdom of uh, the great woman, Billy Kisu. I mean, so there, there are many, many mm-hmm. achievements on this continent that basically uh, have either been concealed from us, hid, hidden from us, distorted, misinterpreted, uh, telling us that uh, uh, places like uh, Zimbabwe or uh, uh, Gumbwe, that these places were created by aliens and all that, coming from Mars and all that kind of stuff. That's because to create and maintain a system Mm. that educates for subjugation and not for liberation, 
means that you have to distort history and you have to lie, you have to falsify. You have to say that Egypt is not in Africa when you can just drive from South Africa to Egypt. Mm. You, they have to, you have to say, well, no, there is Africa that's uh, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, as if the, the Sahara is not Africa itself. Uh, there's no straight line across mm. the Sahara that where you step over one side and you're somewhere where you were not before. Uh, the African continent is, is, is complete, and it, is, uh, it, was, it, it started off as it uh, has ended, uh, as a black continent. And if there are people in Africa who are not black, then they are people who have either invaded or they're the sons or the daughters of the invaders or they're people who are just visiting and so forth. Mm. This is a black continent. Yeah. And, and if you look, I mean, if you look at our history and you see uh, what has been written about us, then you can understand why it was necessary to create these lies. I mean, I, I remember reading about Albert Schweitzer, who was a German doctor who worked in, the, in Gabon. And one of the things he said, he said, you know, it's true that in a way we may be uh, brothers of uh, the Africans, but uh, we white people are the elder brothers. Well, that's a falsification, and that's a lie in itself. I mean, all human beings, homo sapiens, in the world migrated out of Africa which means that Africa was first. This is where Homo sapiens came from. Mm. And, and, and not only that, before 70,000 years ago, all people in the world were black. There were no other people but black people before 70,000 years ago. So migration of Homo sapiens out of Africa brought us uh, uh, this diversity, you see. Of the human population. Yeah, yeah. Now, Professor, I mean, the the other question that I'd I'd like us maybe to to take a look at here is uh, the utility or the function, I guess, of drawing on that rich history, drawing on uh, you know the emotives that you talk about, uh, the Nile, the uh, pyramids, uh, Great Zimbabwe, Munomutapa, and of course uh, Mapungubwe here at home, and how we then, of course, uh, see that playing alongside. Uh, the Afrofuturism that uh, many, certainly in the U.S. and other places in the diaspora and here on the continent, speak about, which sometimes is really mobilized for uh, the the purpose and the function of capital for for all manner of reasons, uh, for narrow accumulation rather, I guess, than you know bolstering and strengthening the agency of African people. How do we ensure that we we, we cautious as we move, and uh, of course, uh, with that care that we take, we also ensure that we're not fearless. You, you, you are, boy, you are really, you're really good, and you're asking really great questions. I just came from a conference a couple of months ago in Berlin, and not in Berlin, but it was a conference on Afrofuturism, and uh, and the Afrofuturists, and I, I didn't know very much about Afrofuturism to be honest with you, uh, but they they invited me there as a keynote speaker, and after I spoke, the Afrofuturists who were mainly uh, in uh, some of them are in technology, some of them are in literature and music, but Afrofuturist music, and uh, uh, some of them are in plastic arts and so on. Um, they're the people who uh, did work uh, on the Black Panther movie, for example, and so on. They said, you know, uh, the reason we, invite you, we invited you here to give the keynote speech is because in Afrocentricity, you talk about what would happen if African people took their own agency and began to talk and create and write and, and imagine 
out of their own history and mm. their own narratives. Do, do, That's why Prof, we invited you. Prof, I'd like us to pause there so, slightly. Uh, we need so, to take a spot so break. The connection Prof, between Prof, Afrocentricity Prof. and Afrofuturism is profound. Prof, let, let's take a quick spot break there, and I want us to continue on that vein in the link between Afrocentricity and Afrofuturism. Professor, you were still unpacking the... ...that were based fundamentally on the polyrhythms uh, and, and the uh, multi-textured uh, 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 ways that we created for ourselves, rather than this sort of boring uh, style that we have inherited from Europe. We would be expressing a uniqueness that is still African and profoundly African, even though it has been modernized. Mm. That's all possible. Yeah. But we have to think of it. We have to think of what was it that our great-great-grandmothers told us? How did they do things? How did they, not that we go back. Prof, are you still with us? Ah. This we can do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here wearing a shirt, for example, with, with an unk on it. Mm. Uh, well, what's an unk? The unk is a, one of the most ancient symbols for life and immortality that comes from ancient Egypt. It's over 5,000 years old. So I, didn't, I don't have a... I don't have a... Uh, uh, a uh, a, 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 a physical unk, but I have a design of an unk mm. on my shirt, you see? So, so what, what we have to do is to draw upon all of our images. I mean, we, we were the first ones to paint on the walls of caves. There's, there's nobody painted on walls of caves, and people are painted on the walls of caves all over the world, but nobody did it early in Africa. Mm. Prof- so, so, I mean, just just on that question, how, how do we take, uh, and I guess, you know, it's, it's the question in a different way here. How do we take, uh, uh, I guess, the impetus that we get and uh, the inspiration to take charge of the African destiny from uh, uh, a philosophical method like Afrocentricity and place it in the world of geopolitics, in the world of a very sort of rampant and uh, rapacious capitalism, uh, and in a world where really... To be honest with you, there's also the ecological uh, dimensions of the kind of social crisis that we see. Uh, and, and how does that find expression in the black world broadly? Professor? Ah, we seem to have lost the professor again there. And uh, uh, yeah, the lines are playing. Zalut Amdiri Renati today. And uh, clearly... Uh, Probably, I guess, uh, the stars not aligning on this particular one. Let's take this brief break. And, uh, Jaws, let's play back some of that, uh, uh, of course, Mkhabulo there from uh, Mulefi Kiti Asante. We're in conversation with uh, Professor Mulefikiti Asante uh, from uh, Temple University all the way out in Philadelphia and uh, seen by many as the father of uh, Afrocentricity, certainly from an activist scholarship uh, perspective. And uh, we continue to try and reestablish our connection with him. But uh, as we do that, let's take this brief break. And on the other side, we'll continue uh, our conversation with the prof. Prof, we have you back on the line, I hope, and it uh, seems the Lions uh, are playing games with us this evening. Uh, just uh, continue on the vein that you were on before we uh, got cut off. 
Yes, I'm on the I'm on the line. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Now, uh, before we got cut off, you, I guess you were speaking about, you know, how uh, in many ways European thought had universalized uh, itself, and uh, despite coming from a very particular and a peculiar experience in the European context, it became this universal basis of knowledge, and uh, and uh, of course at the express exclusion of African forms of knowledge. And the question that I was asking was, you know, how do we then draw the strength from this? Uh, African identity and this rich history that we've been talking about and I guess place it uh, on the geopolitical context that we have uh, on a very sort of rapacious capitalist system uh, that has created a situation where, for instance, South Africa is the most unequal society in the world. How does Afrocentricity form part of our toolbox in being able, I guess, to navigate this kind of uh, environment? Uh, Okay, about Cuba, did you say? No, no, no. Uh, How does it become part of the toolbox that we have as oh, Africans. Yeah. Oh, I, I understand you now. Sure. No, it, it, thank you very very much for that question. Yeah, here's the, here's the thing. The, the, the toolbox of, of, of uh, Africans is, is very rich. Uh, there, there are a multiplicity of uh, tools that we have that we have rarely tapped into because for 400 years we have either been forced uh, to participate in the Eurocentric world. And the Eurocentric world is an ethnocentric world. That means it believes in the valorization of the European experience as the universal experience. Well, I rejected that 40 years ago uh, because I see it as an imposition. Afrocentricity is not an imposition. Afrocentricity is about... African phenomena and African agency, but it's not about imposing uh, Afrocentricity on Asians. Mm. It's not about imposing Afrocentricity on Europeans. It is a way that African people express themselves in the world and would have expressed ourselves in the world if we had never uh, uh, been in contact with white people from, from Europe. We, 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 we would have been that way. Our Africanity would have been expressed out of our own agency. I mean, it's just like people assuming that we did not have science, or we did not have uh, inventions or art, or we did not have uh, ways to transmit knowledge to our youth, when in fact all of those things were founded right here on this continent. And the whole process, of initiation, for example, had been passed down for thousands of years uh, from the old mystery schools that were set up at Waset and Minnefer in the now uh, uh, River Valley and, 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 and circulated throughout the African continent. Some uh, Europeans write that they are, uh, that these things now become uh, uh, secret societies, but they, they were not secret societies. People knew about them. They were societies of, of what you may call secrets. They were societies where people had information and knowledge, and they passed it on from generation to generation. It was a system of education, mm. but it was also a system that allowed people to learn what was valuable and what was not, and how materialism uh, was, could be dangerous because it, it allowed for too much greed, individualistic greed, which is a part of what capitalism is engaged in. 
this notion of I against the world, and I can accumulate as much as I want, and I can accumulate it and, and to hell with the rest of the people in the world. I don't care that they don't have any food to eat. Well, that's not an African value system. That has nothing to do with community or cooperation or relationships. It has nothing to do with character, which is, again, throughout the African world, and I've studied this, throughout the African world, all African people will tell you that character is more important as a virtue than almost anything else. The Yorubais say this. They say, Ifa says that if you have money and you don't have character, the money doesn't belong to you. Hmm. If you have children and you don't have character, your children don't belong to you. So character, good character, is the very basic virtue of the African worldview. Well, you go to the capitalist Christian worldview, they tell you it's love. And love is the highest value. But the Afri- that's not a concept that African people had until we came in contact with the Christians. That's not a, a concept that grows out of community, you see. So it's a whole different thing. And I, I think that we are in a state now where we are beginning to assert uh, on the basis of our historical narratives, uh, a new way of viewing the world. And it's about time that uh, this notion this, uh, of this uh, uh, valorization of uh, whiteness uh, uh, comes to an end. Mm-hmm. It'll be better for white people, too, because then they will be not white, but human. Yeah. Because, it, because it, the only way that, that uh, whites get into this problem is because they try to separate themselves from the rest of the world. This is why we have people like uh, Montesquieu and Hegel and uh, David Hume and um, uh, and and Marx, I would think. Ah, we seem to have lost the professor there, and uh, unfortunately, I guess uh, uh, no better. You see, ah, he's back. Prof, are you with us? Ah, we'll have to let the professor go there, but a seemingly a poignant point uh, to end the conversation there. And I like what he says there at the end, that uh, certainly the task of not only Afrocentricity, but uh, Pan-Africanism and black consciousness is not only about, I guess, you know, the uh, vocation that all of us humans have, which is uh, the total liberation of the people, as uh, Juan Paulo Freire says, but uh, it is in many instances also about liberating white people from their idea or those notions of uh, a superiority complex, as uh, one uh, Stephen Bandubiko said. And uh, uh, I certainly uh, hope that you've enjoyed the conversation we had with uh, Professor Mulefi Kiti Asante. We thought on this Wednesday, let's give you an intellectual treat, you know. Uh, Let's uh, bring uh, certainly one of the heavyweights uh, in uh, African thought uh, on the continent and the diaspora to come and speak to us as in the country uh, for the next few days or so at the University of South Africa uh, at the express invite of the Vice-Chancellor there. And Masimbulalu uh, Vice-Chancellor Ngos Patela Noko, certainly intellectuals as he uh, certainly that uh, accomplished in this kind of manner. I certainly think that uh, his uh, voice and insights in Nguindi year to song Zama Africa. And uh, of course, uh, you might be accustomed to this by now that, uh, you know, at the tail end of every conversation, we, I give some reflections on my end and at times it's sometimes poetic, it's sometimes prose and sometimes it's just, you know, straightforward talk. But uh, today, 
I guess uh, we reflect not only on the life of uh, uh, Martin Tembisile Ahani, known to many as Chris Ahani, and uh, certainly one of uh, uh, one of the most recognisable communists in the third world, and uh, one of the greatest uh, revolutionaries that have been produced by the continent of Africa. And uh, certainly he comes out of uh, the conditions that have produced all of us uh, here. And, uh, of course, we also brought to you that conversation uh, with uh, the folk from Barlow World uh, for their BEE scheme there. And I'd love to hear from you uh, certainly uh, some of the experiences that you have in uh, trying to subscribe to that particular one. And uh, But uh, certainly from my end, uh, I leave you today certainly with some pros on my end. And uh, this one's titled Migrant Labor. Heroes, villains, and victims are tricksters sometimes. Skelem Tzotzi Womfundis is a peddler of hope among the hopeless. Writer in colorless ink on a transparent slate of memory. We're an Ampali Wimbali historian deciphering the puzzle of our heritage, scattered in pieces. In compounds underground through Platteland to the monotonous sound of repetitive machines on factory floors, you travel with fragments in your soiled pockets that never find themselves. On a journey with no map and informed guides, you whisper famed stories of this tourism of the poor. A safari through the slums, natives in their unpreserved but celebrated habitat, Bantus in their habitat, not by preference but by compulsion. The prodigal children return to bankroll the feasts that celebrate their absence. When they return, it is with a message, written in green phlegm, summoned by hollow coughs and sweat-filled nights, with the final clues plastered on unmarked coffins in shallow graves, never to emerge beyond the wooden enclosure of finality. Siyakhumbuzana ngethini ukubasi ngabantwana bomqhuba sikabantwana benzaka sikamatholanyo ngande kudlelana sambumgama omde siqulesa ligangatha safika kwelizwe kwaye ke sishiywe sishiywe nomsebenzi omde ngabantu abafana nothonyana onkomo zibomvu uChris Martin Tembisile hani sihamba nje lomgama omde siqulesa ligangatha oluhlobo asikalibali kuba kalo sikabantwana benzaka thina singabantwana abakhula ngenembe ka gasjeketje sizalwa sinamazinyo kwaye ke nakwelqonga lija sisayi banga le economy